You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Gas Rock 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I'm gonna cook a meal that's gonna make you mine. We're turning up the oven, now we're ready to roast. When you touch me, honey, you'll love it the most. Come on and put me in your loving shoes. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Brian Hill. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Stuart. Happy to be here. Well, yes, indeed. And uh, I should say that this this meeting of us on on the podcast is an extension of a conversation we had, or I was I joined in that you'd started on Twitter, um, in response to Matt Damon's article about being baffled about how his children watch films. Sure. Um, but before we get into that discussion and where that led, and we'll expand on obviously what you were tweeting, um, do you want to give people a brief introduction as to who you are? Absolutely. So I am a screenwriter, a television writer, producer, filmmaker, and comic book author. Um, currently, I am working on the HBO Max show Titans. Okay. I have done that since the inception of that show. Uh, recent screenwriting projects, uh, the upcoming Power Rangers movie, um, the adaptation of the comic book Bitter Root for Regina King and uh, Ryan Coogler, um, uh, comic book world. You know, I've written Batman and the Outsiders, uh, Detective Comics. Um, I've got a book called Chariot that's my own book that's uh, being developed now by Joseph Kaczynski, the director of Tron Legacy, uh, and the upcoming Top Gun 2 for uh, uh, theatrical adaptation. So, yeah, I'm just kind of on the scene in, in that way. Just before we get into it, because I'm fascinated, as, you, as you're someone that, that produces comics as well as has adapted comic material, h- how separate are they as two mediums? Comics and film? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're they're linked now explicitly because studios are looking for intellectual properties to turn in yeah. to you know, films. And uh, comic books have you know, baked in audiences uh, often. Um, and so there's been a big bull run on, on doing that. So, you know, besides the Marvel stuff, which is obvious, the DC stuff, that's obvious. Also, independent comic books are, are also being adapted. Uh, so there's a very close relationship in terms of media adaptation. Yeah. Outside of that, they're pretty separate universes. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just thinking more of like, you know, Alan Moore's point about, about how he, he never sees how Watchmen has been adapted because it's not what he was doing with the comic form is not possible with the, with the film form. 
Well, they're two different medium. Uh, and because of that, direct adaptation is very difficult, you know? And so usually when something gets adapted, it gets radically changed, not radically changed, but it gets significantly changed uh, to adapt to the medium and also the commercial needs, right? Because uh, a comic book, the overhead is much lower than it would be for a theatrical film. So, you know, you could do a graphic novel, a four issue, five issue contained story, and you could probably finish that for $65,000, $70,000 US. Uh, and that's a fairly comfortable um, price point. You can't make a film adaptation for that. You know, the film adaptation is at least going to be in the millions uh, and likely in the tens of millions and oftentimes uh, over $100 million, right? So, uh, when you're spending that kind of money on something, uh, commercial uh, intent is important, I think, to have in the process, or at least that's likely how yeah. the, uh, the studios think about it, right? So, um, you know, it, adaptation, is it, it's a balance of both the differences in the medium and also the differences in the needs of the business model. Interestingly, I'm just, I'm in the process of uh, reading uh, Jack's Return Home, which is the original novel that the Michael Caine film, Get Carter, was adapted from. Right, 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 right. And it's fascinating because obviously there's an iconic film set in Newcastle in northeast of England, mm. and the book alone is set in a different part of England. So already just that fundamental shift before you even start reading it is they set it in a different part of the country. You know, that happens with adaptation, and that, that happens when you write a screenplay and a director makes a makes your movie as well. You mm. know? I mean, uh, there's the director is still largely the author of the film, um, you know, with, with studio involvement, of course, but... Um, you know, you write a screenplay that is a suggestion for how something should be made. But then once it actually gets into the boots on the ground process of making something, generally things change according to the taste of the filmmaker and uh, the producers behind it and, and, and all of that. You know, so as a, as a writer, just strictly speaking from the writing side of it, you know, you, you have to be comfortable with letting go uh, because that's just the nature of the beast that we have. And generally, you know, I, there are certain people, certain personalities that are very frustrating and um, the notes process, development process can be pretty arduous, but that's not across the board. I mean, most of the time I find that um, executives are, you know, trying to move a project in a direction that makes sense to them, you know, mm. and uh, they they work at desk, you know, they they have more of a corporate perspective on things. Um, you know, I have the, uh, the freedom of being an artist, so I don't think about those things very often, but, you know, uh, I, I try to be malleable as well. I, I think fluidity is very important, um, when you're working in media, you know, and just kind of saying, okay, well, if you want to take something there, I can figure out a way to take it there, you know? Uh, and even if you don't agree with the destination, I, I still do the work anyway, um, because ultimately I'm not executing it. Uh, unless I'm being hired to direct something, that's all different, mm. you know, conversation. But like, as a writer, since I'm not going to execute this, um, uh, you know, I just try to do the best I can uh, to facilitate whatever direction that the notes givers want to take in it, you know, as, as to the best of my ability. Well, I mean, weirdly, I mean, I, in, in another life, I used to work in a kind of corporate marketing job. Mm. And in that, you know, I worked to a chief executive who told me what he thought of what I presented him with. I didn't get to do his speeches. <laughs> right, right. Well, when I came out of New York University, the first professional environment I had was in uh, marketing advertising because 
when you graduate with a degree in filmmaking, um, I have a you know BFA in film and television production. It's not worth a lot to a lot of people, but Madison Avenue here in the States, uh, they appreciate it enough to give you an entry-level position in these things. So, you know, I worked uh, for Ogilvy and Mather, Wyden Kennedy, uh, very, very low-level stuff. Um, but, you know, that was marketing was the first professional environment I had after uh, university. So I, I think I've never gotten it fully out of my blood, the marketing and the branding uh, and thinking about things in terms of the communicating, you know, communication of your work to your audience. Uh, which is not a battle you fight when you're writing a screenplay or even making a film, but it is a battle you will eventually fight. So I generally have at least a perspective. Yeah, on and I think, I think, you've, all, I think you've always got to have a perception of who's going to see the end result. It's not about saying do, yeah. everyone's going to love this, but at least know who's going to see it. I do think about who is this for? Yeah. Um, you know, what are their values? Uh what can I do with the project to hopefully speak to that audience in a sincere way, just to have an understanding of it? Because when you're creating something, oftentimes you have limitless choices. Mm. You know, there's many, many, many things you can do. And uh, the big choices we always meditate on and think, uh, you know, deeply uh, about. But what I also think is important is thinking about the smaller choices. You know, are there aesthetic choices? Are there smaller cultural choices that you can make that will increase the visceral quality of the experience for the audience that you're trying to reach? Mm. Uh, and so, you know, that's something that I, I, I think of uh, often. You know, on, on my work in Titans, I'm all I'm thinking about that, and just thinking about like small decisions. It could be the make and model of a car. It could be uh, an idea about wardrobe for an actor. It could be song choice. In, in a show, but I, uh, in an episode. So I, I do think about those things often because all of those things are entry points for people, right? Like fashion is an entry point for mm. some people into cinema. Music is certainly an entry point. Uh, um, and so casting as well, right? Um, certain actors have a uh, certain value for certain people. So there, if you feel like, well, you know, we're not reaching this certain demographic, then it might be time to say, well, can we pull in something from their culture and put it into our work to let them know that we have something for them as well, right? So the, I think the, the job of the, the storyteller, you know, and the cross-media storyteller is to remain fluent in culture as much as you can and try to build entry points into your work as long as it doesn't dilute the intent of the work. You know, you don't want to be slavish to the idea of four quadrants if you don't have a four quadrant piece. And for those who don't know what, I, what I'm talking about, a quadrant is a section of the demographic. Mm. So you can think about a quadrant. Uh, one quadrant could be children under the age of 12. Another quadrant can be, you know, between 12 and 25, then you know, 25 to 45, then 45 to 65, right? These are all different quadrants. So when you hear someone say a four quadrant uh, piece, what they really mean is this is an all audiences thing. This is here to bring everyone in. Um, everything isn't designed uh, to do that. Everything isn't optimized by doing that. But um, thinking about who are the people that I think would respond to this? What do they love? Where are they? How do they embrace media? What is their relationship to media? Thinking about all of those things at the beginning of a process can help inform you 
and hopefully make your work um, ultimately more effective. I think that plays into what you were responding to um, and hopefully what we'll get to discuss in relation to the, the interview with Matt Damon. So in the Sunday Times, I'll just give a brief sort of what the, what the stand first was saying, which is Matt Damon is baffled by how his children watch films, infuriated as they pause and chat their way through the art form he adores. The way they watch is different from how we did, he says. How can you watch a movie if you're texting? As someone who makes these things, I can't say I love that. Movies are, as we know them, aren't going to be the thing in our kids' lives. And that makes me sad. And that prompted a kind of summary of a discussion with yourself of, and I think it was directly from one of your tweets actually, is what we grew up with isn't the best. Things were different before. They will be different in the future. Don't grieve what changes. Find the opportunity and what's emerging. Indeed. I mean, you know, one of the things that we do as people is we tend to, you know, look at our experiences with anything, in this case, media. And we, we sort of emotionally feel like, well, this is the proper relationship between us and media. This is the way things should be distributed, should be experienced. But in truth, it's always evolving and changing. You know, when films were silent, there was a completely different relationship that people had to those films. And then there was sound and then there was color, right? And then there was television. And I, you know, you can look back at the articles and find people bemoaning the invention of television because it was going to destroy everything else. It didn't. And then later in my lifetime, it was the VHS was going to destroy everything. Right. Then, oh, well, that's going to home video is going to destroy everything. And it, it didn't, you know. So I understand what, what, uh, uh, I'm going to call him Matt. Never, well, I know I have actually met Matt Damon once, but I'm sure he wouldn't remember. It was like years ago. So I'll just call him Matt. So I'm, I'm going to, uh, uh, I understand what he's saying emotionally. Yeah. Because he had a, a very specific relationship to films, both as a fan and as an actor and eventually as a producer and a director as well. I think he's also been directing. So, and he, you know, would like to have that handed down. And this disruption, uh, that we're seeing um, is certainly evolving and changing the way that people interface with media. But here's the ironic part, Stuart. Cool. Damon was a disruptor when he really uh, evolved his film career. He, he was an actor that was doing solid work, but then he decided that, well, I need to write my own thing so it can be my own vehicle so that people can see me in a different way. And that wasn't really a common tactic that people were doing. So even that in itself was an act of disruption, right? But uh, what often happens with us is we begin as disruptors, we achieve success, we then become mainstream. We have uh, an establishment foundation, and so we become the establishment, Mm. right? Punk music becomes pop music if enough people listen to it and buy it, Yes. right? And then, then you're threatened now by whatever the new punk is, right? Um, it seems that younger people are less interested uh, than I was in the highly focused, darkened theater experience. I think that is true. However, there's also a robust uh, movement among young people to discover older films and to appreciate older films. You look at things like movie. Uh, letterboxed, you know, these things are, are driven in a large part by people that are genuinely interested in the film. You look at the vast landscape of YouTube film analysis, 
mm. which is by and large done by people in their 20s and younger uh, who are deeply appreciating films because what what they have now is the access to them that I didn't when I was in my 20s. You know, it was very difficult for me to see foreign films. When I grew up in Missouri in the United States, the American Midwest, we didn't have a lot of places that had those films. So I wasn't able to hear about a Christoph Kieslowski movie and then immediately be able to, you know, fire it up uh, at home and watch it and understand what it is and then hop onto a message board and then have a detailed discussion about, you know, Benoche's performance in blue or <laughs> Kieslowski's use of, of color in the Trois trilogy, you know, and all that. So that's where, what I think is really exciting. Um, and, and in addition to all of this, we also have the role of technology and what the tech companies are doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So film and technology have always been in this, dance of evolution, you know, one sort of effect and the other, but now it's even more that way because you have technology companies that are changing the nature of distribution with film studios having to catch up. You have technology companies that are creating cameras and sound equipment that can give you a very strong image for a percentage, a small percentage of what it would have cost me in the nineties to generate the same quality image, even if I could generate that image. Right. Mm. Um, you know, every, every young person who has a smartphone is carrying an entire music studio and post-production studio in their pocket. If they wanted to use it that way, they also have the power of a one button press distribution, right. That did not exist before. If you were how Hartley, uh, you know, or, or like, you know, Greg Rocky making really interesting independent films, you were pretty much reduced to a New York, Los Angeles short theatrical run. And then maybe people would find you on VHS if it was carried that way in various markets, but oftentimes smaller markets wouldn't even get those, those, those movies. So now you can make something and, and distribute it and everyone across the world can have instant access. So, uh, while I understand what, what Matt is saying, because it's irritating when I'm in a theater and I want to focus on the film and I see cell phone lights in front of me and there's conversations happening around me. And yeah, that's certainly uh, not an experience I love. I do think that on balance, young people uh, are still going to have a relationship with cinema. Um, it's going to be different. And we're going to have to respond to it. Um, you know, we talk often about millennials, but millennials are aging, mm. you know, like, like, it, you know, now let's look at the 12 year olds, you know, the 11 year olds. Right. You know? Uh, and, and I just think, you know, you always lose when you try to build a wall in front of cultural evolution. You know, it's just impossible to, to do that. Uh, I'm a bit more Zen about it. And, and I'm, you know, my suggestion is always, well, what can you do within the current of what exists to, to use the flow of the river, you know, for, for different things. In a way, Brian, it's like, it's, it's your 12 year old is a digital native. Absolutely. Whereas, whereas my life has known a time before the digital revolution, as it were. So in a way I'm a digital immigrant in a straddling two different times. 
Mm. You know, I've moved to digital <laughs> to digital land, and uh, you know, I didn't want to go there. I didn't ask to go there. It just happened under my very feet. Whereas a twelve-year-old right. has known nothing but constant Wi-Fi. It's interesting, you know. I, I mean, looking at like TikTok, for instance, mm-hmm. which you know, on, on one hand, you can look at it like, okay, this is largely disposable content, kind of content made to be disposable. Um, and there might be a certain amount of narcissism in it and in all of these, these things. But what, what I find really interesting is there are advanced editorial techniques happening in these TikToks. Now, the, the kids that are doing it, they're, they're not aware of it, right? They're not thinking of Nouvelle Vogue and, and, and Godard when they're doing their TikTok, right? They're not thinking about, you know, French New Wave breathless, right? But the use of the jump cut, right? The the uh, the use of frenetic editing, you know, just the the grammar, the language of cinema. You know, these kids have a fluency that I did not have when I was 13, 14 years old. Um, and we have a, a generation of, of folks that are really building a strong practiced fluency in cinema. You know, Gladwell speaks of the 10,000 hours, right? Well, if you're making TikToks all the time since you were like 12 years old and then you turn 18, then you might get your 10,000 hours of filmmaking, you know, uh, before you leave high school, you know? Um, and so that, that's all like really exciting. Um, uh, you know, uh, like my, my wife will be watching some YouTube that's just a young woman recording her, her lifestyle uh, in a foreign country, mm. you know, and there's no narrative quality to it. It's just, she wakes up, she makes tea, she feeds the dog, you know, she sets her clothes out for the day and it's very relaxing, kind of meditative to put on. It's ambient in a way, but it's also like beautifully shot because you have digital tools now where, you know, if you don't have a camera crew and they don't, they're setting up the camera themselves and shooting things themselves. Um, you can, you know, download, you know, something they call a LUT, which, uh, gives you a color contrast tone to your footage. And this stuff looks as gorgeous and silky as a Wong Kar Wai film from 1998 or something, you know? Um, and the possibility of that is super exciting. And so that's where I live. You know, I, I try to look at things as additive and not subtractive. Mm. Um, and if a door closes, I try to find the open window. The headline of Matt Damon, with the interview with Matt Damon, was obviously about, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of my own father telling me that that music I listen to is just noise. It's not proper music, you know. It's it's very much that kind of generational divide. But I think it's almost like on it's got it's got it's on uh, steroids right now because of the rate of change that we're experiencing. But I think there was the the other subtext to to what that article was about, and I think it's been it's been something that's been dawning on a lot of a lot of producers is that the world of celebrity and how we define that. And then certainly the movie star as was, you know, of the golden age and probably right into the nineties at the very least mm-hmm. has over 20 years, arguably waned. You know, the, I remember the first time I was confronted with the idea that someone who presented a YouTube channel was famous and I'd never heard of them. And you're thinking, Right. This guy talks or this woman talks to 20 million people every day. And you're like, I have, I have now been segmented out of something that I, I don't fully understand. And I think, I think some of what Matt's talking about is, is a real challenge for, for the film industry. Cause in a way, what is celebrity and, 
and how are we defining it? And you 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 referenced a musician, um, Russ, who who's who's yes. independent approach to getting an audience and becoming a star in his in his um, in his fishbowl, as it were, was was not the normal route for it. In general, Stuart, I think that music is always prologue for everything else. Okay. In in entertainment, right? So usually the seismic shifts will happen in music first. Um, and so I'm always looking at what's going on in music because that will be the future of everything else. And so in the case of Russ, he's a, for those that aren't aware, he's a hip hop artist um, uh, in, the, in the States and he's fully independent or at least was fully independent for the major part of his career. I think he had one record deal with a major record label and then left it and became independent once again. Um, and he is sort of a product of the culture that we have where you can create music from anywhere, upload it from anywhere, market it yourself, find your audience completely outside of the purview of major record labels and radio play and all the things that used to matter. Um, and, I, and I think to your earlier point, Stuart, it used to be that there were few places that audiences would be. Mm. Right. They would, you know, you had radio stations, you know, you had your local radio stations. I mean, in the States, mostly you had maybe two or three popular music radio stations. Um, and you had a lot of AM radio, but like FM radio, you had like a few. You know, you had the rock station, you had the 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 hip hop RB station, and then you had the oldies, you know, and like the classic rock, right? Yeah. Like, and so you had these kind of four markets and and you knew kind of where everyone was. And you know, in television, you only had a few channels, and even when you had cable. You know, cable channels were usually extensions of the same media companies that owned the the non-cable channels. So it was all still kind of coming from the same mountain, right? Um, but with, you know, YouTube, SoundCloud, you know, TikTok, Twitch, you know, the, the thing that I'm forgetting that's probably going to launch on Friday that will change everything, right? Mm. You know, audiences are split all over the place. Are they on Netflix? Are they on Hulu? Are they on Amazon? Are they watching NBC? Like, we don't really know, right? So the ability to uh, hold an audience captive to receive your marketing, your branding, right, is very difficult to do. There are things that release that I had no idea they were coming out because I'm just not where the marketing is. And I'm in the business. Mm. But I might not have watched scripted content that week. So I was watching YouTube that week, but I have YouTube premium, so I don't get ads. And so I just didn't know this movie was releasing, right? Um, and that presents a unique difficulty, you know? Uh, um, but it's incumbent on us in the business to do the extra diligence to respond. And to your point about celebrity, yes, celebrity has changed. Uh, you know, uh, it used to be that celebrity was sort of the product of corporate, you know, thought in a way. We would find a person, me speaking as the corporation, finds a person that has a certain level of marketability and we would build that through a series of projects, eventually like building up their commercial identity. Um, we'd also, you know, you know, parallel that with other media that would introduce them to people on our chosen platforms. Um, and through exposure therapy, they would become household names, hopefully. And in becoming a household name, they become bankable. Mm. We know that because these people are part of your lives now, 
Uh, you know, they're on the cover of the magazine at the grocery store. They're on the the interview with Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood. They're, you know, in the movie trailer and the rest of it. Maybe they're on the billboard selling you a purse, right? Um, we know that they have value and then hopefully that value translates into your interest. And so we feel better when we spend $200 million because we have Matt Damon in a movie and not Brian Hill in a movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the idea. But uh, the tech sector has disrupted that because people can now self publish themselves in media the same way they could do in music 15 years ago. Right. Again, music being prologue. And so now you can self-publish yourself to a streaming platform, build an audience for yourself, you know, whether it's on a, a TikTok or, you know, YouTube or what have you. Um, and you can create your own ubiquity. You know, you can be a presence, a daily presence, if you, you know, put that work in for someone mm. and build those audiences. Um, and because independent art and I'm going to loop in like TikTok with art and, and most YouTubes with art, you know, it might not be strictly narrative art, but I'm going to loop it in. Independent art can respond immediately without the boardroom, without the filter of, of corporate thought. So if you're a slow moving, powerful corporate dinosaur, you know, you have a lot of force in the marketplace, but you just can't keep up with all these little velociraptors that can move faster than you, you know, and, and they're more adaptable than you are and they can turn faster than you can. And it's, it's hard to catch up with that. So if I'm a young person, say I'm like 14, 15 years old, you know, I'm in high school. um, uh, I'm probably going to relate to a person that's closer to my age that is responding immediately to the same things that are going on in my life. I'm building a relationship with that person. I'm probably going to identify with them a little more or at least equally to Will Hunting in a movie that I see for two hours, right? Where I know it's a character and that's Matt playing a character and the rest of it. So, yeah. So, you know, it, it might be incumbent on if you're interested in celebrity and you're a traditional celebrity and you feel like maybe your platform isn't as strong as it used to be through no fault of your own you know, maybe take a deeper investment into getting on other platforms in some way. It's, inter- it's you know, interesting. That, it's interesting. Build that, audience. Sorry. It's interesting that the, 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 the canary in the cave, as far as, as Matt's concerned is, is noticing how his kids behave. But if mm-hmm. we, if we look over the last 20 years and the relationship between say, just film, just taking film and TV and obviously TV plus streaming is where a big disruption has happened. I remember when Quentin Tarantino guest directed, I think it was CSI. And it was big news because film directors and TV didn't, that was like a disease if you were a film director working in TV. You know, fast forward 15 years or so from there and you've got David Fincher defining a show like um, The Serial Killer. um, Mindhunters. Yeah, defining a whole TV series or or, um, Mm. House of Cards. And, you know, suddenly the, the, the line has been blurred there between what a film director is and what a TV director is. Admittedly, there still is a difference between a showrunner and a screenwriter on a film. They, they and the director on a TV show and a director on a, on a film. But, but already that was blurred. And then actors began to step between the two things. So that thing that was the face on the billboard or on the magazine in the in Walmart is now meaning more than one thing. It's not 
and, and interestingly, Matt Damon, and I'm th- I was thinking of names as you were talking, he's like Matt Damon, um, Angelina Jolie, and a couple of others are the only movie stars that are left. Tom Hanks, he's not done TV yet, I don't think. And and it's interesting that that, that blur, you know, he's, Matt Damon's own peer group has been as responsible for the changing attitude towards film as his kids' media stacking while they watch a film. Hanks. I believe Hanks did an Apple TV show. Oh um, God, yes, yes, he, yes, he has. I recall. Yeah. I, I, I didn't see, I didn't see it, but I, I do remember. I, you know, I get the screeners, the WGA, you know. But, but, uh, what, but the point, but it's a, that, that in itself is it's to, how, how long? That's a career that's five decades long almost, right. and, and he's in TV, and it, and now it's acceptable. Whereas in the eighties, when he was sort of deciding what film to be in, the idea that he might go into TV would have been like career suicide as a movie star. Well, sure, Stuart. And, and, you know, once again, I think we have to take a macrocosmic view mm. at, at the relationship between television and film and the cultural status of each. So for a very long time, the quality of the signal in television was just much worse than the quality of a projected film. It just looked worse, right? Um, and it was a smaller screen. Uh, and it was black, and, it was really black and white in my house when I was And it was black and white, white. Yeah, it was black and white, right? So there was a certain just aesthetic hierarchy that, you know, just was what it was, you know? And over time, that hierarchy has completely broken down because of digital filmmaking, because of the quality of, of televisions themselves, because of the quality of home sound systems, right? All of these different things, uh, the size of the screen. You know, when I was a kid, I knew that one family that had a 65-inch rear projection television, and it was as heavy as a Cadillac. And you would go to their house, and it wasn't, the screen wasn't, like the quality wasn't fantastic, but it was big, Mm. right? And it was a marvel this thing, you know, you, you'd pop in like the breakfast club or something and watch it. And you're like, wow, Molly Ringwald is almost the same size Molly Ringwald is in real life. You know, it was like (laughs) one of those things, right. Um, shout out Molly Ringwald. Um, but you know, now most people have a, a beautiful flat screen television. That's at least 1080p, if not 4k, I think it might be difficult to not buy a 4k television these days. Right. Mm. And so, you know, you have this pristine quality right? and that means that aesthetically, you know, the differences between theater and film, it's, it's getting a little blurry. Um, and, and so because of that, the experience isn't inherently lesser, you know, as production values, uh, get some equivalency across the board. You know, you're looking at like Marvel. I mean, I work on a, uh, let's look at my own television show. The, the aesthetic quality of Titans, the production value of Titans was impossible on television 20 years ago. A non-start. You just could not do this, you know? Mm. But now we can. Now we can have superhero action and aesthetics that at least give you, uh, uh, you're in the orbit of, you know, the $200 million film, you know, and, and all of that in terms of how you experience it aesthetically. So it doesn't feel like to be in one is to be in a lesser thing anymore. And now when you combine all of this with the nature of content and what people go to theaters for, 
I think as ticket prices got more expensive, as home video became DVD, which became streaming, I think a lot of people are looking at, well, I could spend like in Los Angeles, it costs me to buy a ticket if I just go to an evening show and don't look for a special or whatever it is. Yeah. I think it's like $20 US to buy a ticket for a film. Now, if I go with anyone else, that's $40. And maybe I drive and then I have to park. That's probably another $10. Hmm. So we're 50 bucks in, two tickets and just parking. I haven't gotten anything to eat yet. I get any concessions. We are easily approaching $80 to go see a film, right? And that's just two people. Now, imagine you have a child that's coming with you, right? You can add another $40 to that, you know, between the ticket and the thing, you know, or two children or whatnot. So it's kind of an expensive proposition. And then when you compare that to, well, I can also just wait to buy the DVD at $29.95 and I have it forever at physical media. Or... I can just rent it streaming for six dollars, uh, and I can just watch it at home. And the release window between theatrical and home is so short now. You know, you know. I remember the days where a movie would come out in the theater, and if you did not see it in a theater, you were likely going to have to wait a year before it would hit home video. You just wouldn't be able to see it, right? Well, now that that year has become six weeks from its release date, seven weeks. You know, I just I just logged into Amazon uh, to watch some things. And I saw that, you know, I think Fast 9 is already up there. I can rent that. And that seems like it just came out probably still in a theater somewhere. Right. So uh, I think a lot of audiences started to wait. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's interesting when you say that, because I, I mean, when I was a kid, I can remember friends of mine going to the States on holiday. They saw E.T. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't see it for another six months in the right. UK because the cinema wasn't the day, in, you know, the global release date pattern wasn't normal back in the eighties. So yeah, it was. It whereas was, I can, know, like you say, I can watch Fast Nine now as well on Amazon or whatever. And, and to Matt's point, when he was talking about his, his children, I think a large part of why you're not seeing that dedicated focus when people, young people, go to a theater is they know that they'll be able to see it, you know, at their leisure very, very soon. So it's more of a socialization experience. It's more of a way to kind of hang out with your friends, you know, and just kind of sit and there's something on screen and you can kind of watch it if you want. But, you know, you don't feel like, well, if I don't watch Return of the Jedi in a theater, then I'm just not going to know what happens in the end of the Star Wars trilogy or it's going to get spoiled for me if I don't, like, that culture doesn't really exist anymore. And I think that's, that's why you're, you're not seeing the reverence for the theatrical experience that, you know, you know, Matt might be speaking to or, or Quentin Tarantino. And, and, I, th- and I think, to. I think as well, I think there's a, there's a little bit of myth-making amongst even, even the most, you know, some of the most ardent sort of film fans about how much you see on the big screen. You know, mm-hmm. I can, I can point to, number of examples of favourite films that I never, I mean, a favourite film of mine will be Time Bandits, say. I first mm-hmm. saw that when it was on public broadcast on television and I videoed it. So sure. I watched it over and over on a VHS with adverts <laughs> and sure. never saw it on a big, I actually was lucky enough to see it on a big screen recently and it blew my mind. But 
my love of that film had not diminished because I never got to see it in the cinema. Oh, absolutely, Stuart. I mean, most of the films that I cherished, I saw on home video or cable, mm. you know, because I was young, so I couldn't get into the aliens. You know, I, I couldn't go see the Terminator. I, you know, uh, uh, I couldn't see Leave the Weapon. I couldn't buy a ticket to it, right? So I would experience these movies on cable um, or on VHS or, or something. And so, yeah, I saw movies in the theater, but they were generally, you know, movies that were around targeted, like for my age group, you know, uh, animated things, you know, uh, PG fair, you know, that kind of deal. But a lot of the movies that um, really, I think were formative for me, uh, I saw on, in, in some kind of home format, uh, whether it was, you know, just basic television, basic cable, premium cable or VHS. Hmm. Um, and so I think you're right. I think, I think we tend to lionize uh, our memories, you know. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Of these things. Um, and when you really take a clear eye at it, you realize like, oh, well, hold on. Like, I fell in love with James Cameron at home. You know, uh, and then then you become a fan and then, you you know, you go get older and you see the next thing and the next thing you see True Lies in the theater and, you know, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but but yeah, you know, and, and you know, it's it, it's also the nature of like the content that's being produced. And, you know, like, you know, you were speaking to David Fincher and how David Fincher uh, moved to television. Well, I think that's largely because television is where adult drama lives. True. So if you're David Fincher, you know, just, just the way marketing is working, you know, all of that, it's sort of impossible to cut through the noise with a seven right now. You know, like Michael Mann is likely my favorite filmmaker. Um, but I don't think you could draw an audience to heat in a theater anymore. Maybe collateral because you had Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Mm. And so Cruise might still have box office strength like that. But, you know, if you were to try to remake Heat, not that anyone should, but like, I don't even know how you would do that and make it economically viable in the theater. Um, even if you could find two acting lions equivalent to Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, I still don't think that a theater would be the best place for it. I mean, Heat would would probably be better as a streaming miniseries if you were going to I was going to, to say, I can't, I can't help but think it would be a six-part streaming series as, a, as, right. a, as, a, as an updated version. Um, what do you think? Because I think what's interesting here is that we, we can point to 
our favourites and their and their films that that sort of are, are canonised and lionised every, everywhere we go. But obviously, there are new things being made today, and and and, and it's not something I thought about till, till till we started talking. But I feel like you know, it's a lot of popular culture you can class as post World War Two culture. You know, it's the second half of the twentieth century going into the twenty first century. There was there was some popular culture things. But they were really the building blocks for what we what we got to enjoy by the time we were kids. You know, there was no history of popular culture until we started to make it so. You know, there were in the seventies there were no courses on media. You know, and people doing dissertations about, you know, making a rock album or something. But by the eighties and nineties, that was pretty. That became pretty normal because mm-hmm. popular culture became an artifact, just like Anne Boleyn's dress. You know, <laughs> in, right. in, to historians. <laughs> you know. And and sure, maybe sure. what's hap- maybe what's been happening, like again under our feet, because that's what the the shifting sands of time tend to do, is that whereas before we could always imagine the whole history of film, the whole history of TV, the whole history of music, but now there's so much of it, and it only keeps getting more and more that you can't expect a thirteen year old to have to sort of do their time with, you know, a Kurosawa. And, and a Goddard film before they get to watch anything else, so they understand the medium they're watching. That's certainly true. Um, but what they're also doing is they're watching a lot of things that are derivations of Goddard and Truffaut. <laughs> yeah, right? you know, and so uh, they might not watch Kurosawa, but you know, they might they likely have seen a Star Wars cartoon that is has a lot of Kurosawa in it. You know. Uh, and so they're, they're, you're still getting the technique. Maybe you're not experiencing the actual art, but then you also might go back to experience that art. I think, uh, and I'm not saying that, like, you know, that Damon was saying this. I don't think he was. But I do think that oftentimes, generationally, people look behind at younger people and make this assumption that they're not going to have intellectual curiosity about anything, mm. that they're just never going to go back and explore things. And that's just not true. I mean, you know, you can see it again, music being prologue. You see it in the resurgence of vinyl culture. It's not baby boomers that are bringing vinyl back. You know, it's mm. young people that are fascinated with the format, with the, with the bespoke listening experience. You know, the, the soul can understand the way that streaming oftentimes can make experiences disposable. And uh, no matter what your age, no matter what demographic you're in, you might want to cherish your experience more and you'll find a different way to engage, right? So uh, as long as we have... The, the one thing about the streaming landscape that does disturb me is the shifting access we have to certain things, mm. right? You know, the when you when you get physical media out of the picture, you're beholden to legal agreements for the access to the content. And oftentimes things are falling through the cracks that used to be easier to, to see, you know, because, well, easier in the sense that you could go to a store and pick it up, um, more expensive because, you know, the cost was media and all that. But, yeah. you know, it's sometimes I'm just looking for a relatively mainstream film from the 80s or something, and it just isn't streaming anywhere for some weird reason. And there's just no way I can access it, you know, or something was was on Amazon and now it's not. Now it's on Netflix. Now it's not. Now it's on who, you know, and the, that's the, the thing that I'm, I'm a little concerned about is uh, the way that having access to these libraries 
work. Um, you know, and the preservation of original intent and the rest of it. I mean, you mentioned you, you're a premium subscriber on YouTube. I mean, I, I've got Netflix, I've got Amazon, I've got Shudder. I did have Apple, but I haven't anymore because I couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't watching anything. So it was like, there was no point. I've got stars and Mm. I've got a cine world, which is unlimited cinema pass. So that's what's that five things that I'm subscribing to. Plus I subscribe to a couple of podcasts that are independent. I mean, they, they fall into this category of media that wouldn't have existed 20 years ago. You know, people who are making it for themselves and they found an audience, you know, they're not, they're not backed by any, corporation or anything they, they are the corporation of themselves and there's a limit to me as an individual consumer i mean i get plenty of choice that way but i don't get so for example conversations around i don't know loki i've got mm-hmm. no idea what's going on in loki I, I don't have disney so therefore i'm the, with the way the right. present system exists i'm not going to see loki until what <laughs> it ends up being so old and out of date that it just can fall onto whatever's left of public service broadcasting in 10 years from now that's the thing that's a little, little tricky, you know, is uh, sometimes it's, it's very overwhelming. You know, choice fatigue settles in very quickly. Um, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with the intention of finding something to watch, uh, finding a film, yeah. new film, I'm watch a new film. And then I fire up Netflix or, or Hulu or, or, or Amazon, you know, whatever streaming platform of choice. And there's only so many pages I can click through before I just get exhausted and decide just to watch YouTube or just put an album on or something. You know, like it's, it is a little exhausting and it's very difficult. Unlike a, a physical video store. I mean, where, here's Brian, here's an exact, here's, yeah. here's an academic uh, research point about choice that I, learned, I, learned, I did a master's back in 2008 in mass media. Mm. And, and one of the classes we were looking at TV and they, they, uh, they found that, and this is just about TV, so it plays into what we're talking about, about choice, but this is where you're just talking about channels. So a mm-hmm. research project found that if you give someone 100 channels to choose from, they'll only watch on average 12. Sure. If you give them 200, that increases by one, and they'll watch on average 13. So more choice right. is actually not more to watch because there still are only 24 hours in a day. And they're still only our seven days a week. For sure. And, you know, in my experience often, um, you know, it's exhausting to, you know, sift through things and, and try to find something that's of interest and oh, this might be interesting. I'll kind of click, keep clicking through. And, you know, the, there was a, a, a visceral tactile quality to being in a video store, hmm. walking the aisles, picking up the boxes. So frankly, there was just more stimulus involved in the ritual. You know, you didn't just sit in one place and press a button on your remote control and watch JPEGs pass by and have trailers auto start. You know, you you were paying attention to cover art. You know, you were turning the box over and looking at it. You were hearing conversations with people. It was a little more social. You know, you were, oh, is this movie good? Oh, you know, I, so, so many times I'd pick up a, a VHS uh, or DVD and hear someone say, oh, you should you should watch that. I watched that last week. It was really cool. You know. And you'd be like, okay, cool. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and pick that up, right? Uh, the the kind of DoorDash, Postmates, everything on demand aspect of it, it can be a little numbing, Stuart. And I often, it's rare that now I go to streaming to find something new. I'll usually go to streaming to see something I, you know, specific. 
right? Whether it's like, I'm in a David Lynch mood, I want to watch Lost Highway. So I'll just figure out where that is and I'll watch. Or, oh, I heard about this new series and I want to watch, you know, I want to watch this new show. Like Netflix is a new show coming out uh, called Cherry Flavored something, or I forgot the name of it, but uh, I think Rosa Salazar is in it. I'm very curious about it. Uh, and so I'll make an appointment to see certain things. But uh, I rarely just kind of take a take a risk, you know. Um, and then things get buried so quickly, deep, 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 deep into the selections that well, I just know I will never see them again. <laughs> just won't see them again. I, I realize that my viewing habits, because, I, I mean, I work from home, so the separation between work and life is very fine. And mm-hmm. when me and my wife decide to sit down and watch something, there's no time to be, what are we going to watch? So, for example, we've right. been watching Bosch, which in Britain is on Prime. So mm-hmm. we know if we sit down to watch something together, we go to Bosch, we watch the next watch the next episode, maybe two, and that's our viewing habit. We don't no, whatever else might be available on Prime doesn't matter. Whatever's available on terrestrial TV doesn't matter. And it dawned on me because the Olympics have just been and gone that I haven't watched a single thing of the Olympics because I do no longer just sit on my couch and switch the TV on and see what it's going to throw at me. Oh, absolutely, Stuart. I mean, I, I mean anything I've seen of the Olympics, I've seen scrolling past me on Twitter. Yeah. You know, maybe a highlight or, or something. But I, I no, I, I did not sit and watch a single event, um, you know, from my home, right? That did not happen. Um, and there are a lot of things that I just don't, see anymore you know um it'd be you know, like like take television like i rarely watch abc cbs nbc mm. yeah which are my stations here in, in the states right so like that kind of scripted television i'm just not going to watch it when it broadcasts i'll catch up later might catch something on a streaming thing you know it's going to be on the plus network or whatever i'll see it then but and what that does is one um i see no advertising which is the reason why i don't watch it because i'd rather not see a commercial mm. So I don't watch. So, you know, I'm in a demographic that doesn't get as many commercials. I literally get less commercials than me the same age 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Right. Ads hit me less, which I'm sure is alarming to advertisers Two, I won't stick around to watch the next thing, which I would often do. If I was making, you know, my weekly appointment to watch law and order on NBC the day it broadcast, I might not inherently be interested in the thing that was after it, but I might leave it on mm. and I might check it out. It might become a fan or I might tune in 15 minutes early and like, Oh, you know what? I might watch the rest of this sitcom or something. I didn't think I was going to be into it, but I saw like 10 minutes of it and whatever. And so I'll take a look at it. That never happens. And so now I'm making choices solely based on slice thinking marketing. And when I say slice thinking, I mean, the instant reaction I have to the poster, basically, right? Like, you know, you see something, you're like, okay, that just doesn't look like it's for me. I'm just not going to watch it. It's not going to fire it up, you know, because there's, there's, there's no, I, I don't accidentally stumble on it, right? There, you know, there, that, that, that culture isn't there. I don't have to watch Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood or any of that to find out what's going on. And a lot of times I'd say I wanted to watch Access Hollywood because Daniel Craig was doing an interview about Casino Royale or something, right? And I really want to see Casino Royale. So I want to see the Daniel Craig interview. Well, I'll watch the whole broadcast. And then I might become aware of another thing that someone else is in because I'm waiting for Daniel to show up to talk to me about Bond for five minutes, right? Um, But because there's no value in that stuff anymore, really. 
because people don't really read magazines anymore. You know, when you give audiences the ability to surgically control what they absorb, they're going to do that. And when that happens, you get this, this explosion of niche markets where you can kind of fully customize your media experience to your tastes as you believe they are, which is good in the sense that if you really want to go down a YouTube rabbit hole about knitting, well, you can watch hours and hours of content about people knitting wool and it's there for you, right? There's a rabbit hole. You can fall down it. You'll have more than you can possibly watch. Right. Mm. Um, That's great because we weren't able to do that before. What isn't as great is I'm not compelled to reach outside of what I believe my interests are anymore. I just don't have to do that. So I can listen to the same musicians that I always listen to because I don't have to listen to the radio. Um, I could put a playlist on and, you know, I might get some similar songs to what I'm listening to. The algorithm might generate that for me, but I honestly rarely do that. I hop from familiar album to familiar album. Uh, maybe an artist I, I follow is releasing a new album and I'll take a look at that. But, you know, there's so many things I just don't get because I'm just not aware of them and don't feel like experimenting. And and that makes it more difficult um, to to, I think, you know, kind of get audiences in. It's a kind of a unique challenge, you know, there. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, that you you and I are just two people um, in who, who who enjoy actively consuming media, yet both of us have, we have similar traits, but we have very different traits. And mm. if I, if you go back to your days when you were working at Ogilvy's or something, mm-hmm. we're just two people, but if you sort of go 300 million who live or so who live in the States and the 70 million that live in Britain, they're all behaving in this, in their own unique way. Absolutely. How in God's name does a, does a, does a producer's marketing arm, a studio's marketing arm, find any eyeballs in this in this future that we're living in? Yeah, I think about that often, Stuart. And so, you know, it's a couple things. It's it's you know, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, I, I am a nightmare for traditionalist advertising, you know, thinking, right? Traditionalist marketing strategy, because I am a rabid consumer of content, but I'm also not anywhere where I used to be, where someone like me would normally be. Mm. And um, part of it is a generational thing where you're going to need people that are in marketing and advertising that grew up experiencing these platforms rather than having people that are in these positions that are trying to keep the old guard in place. You need to get people who grew up with, you know, the way things are now so that they're just more fluent. Because even if you find someone willing to say, okay, you know, you go to, you know, such and such pictures and you say, okay, here's, you know, what's our, what's the marketing spend you have? Well, we have this $150 million marketing campaign putting on top of a hundred million dollar move. All right. Where are you spending your money? Well, you know, this much is billboards, this much is, uh, you know, movie trailers, you know, this much is public relations and marketing, trying to get our actors on, you know, talk shows, whatever it is, you look at all these traditional spends, Someone says, well, I think you need to grow. Like this social media spend is really low. And I think this is more useful to you than billboards, right? Now, eight out of 10 people might throw you out of the room. Um, Even if they agreed with you, they might throw you out of the room because they've got 
a long relationship with the people that do the billboards and the thing, you know, it's like upsetting the apple cart. But even if they were to listen to you and, and agree with you, they might just not be able to convince, you know, people holding the purse strings, that's where you got to put the money, right? And so um, what I think it's going to take is more unique and bespoke thinking around how to, uh, you know, expose audiences to your content. And that is the thing that is most difficult for corporate America to do. They don't like having to, to do unique things outside of the textbook. You know, they, it's, it's comforting to have a textbook. Yeah. You know, and it, I, I imagine as well in, in a bizarre way, the pandemic has ripped up a number of textbooks that they used to refer to, because let's say for example, for the big Marvel movie or the big bond movie, there isn't the comfort anymore of being able to just release it across the world. That doesn't exist right. yet. Whereas, you know, right. two years ago, you could schedule your films and have them in every country in the world. And every country in the world had free access if they had, you know, if they had cinemas and stuff. The, the, the audiences could go find the film, you know, and there'd be local marketing and whatever. Whereas you don't know whether anyone can visit cinemas in certain countries now because of COVID. You don't know how comfortable people feel about going to a cinema. So, Suddenly, that that notion of a simple plan to release a big movie has just been reduced to, we're going to have to tailor this to the country we For made sure. it in, the country who's our main audience, and then the rest of the world is, is, is like annoying because it's like, it's like just walking in different stores. It's no longer, um, you know, no longer, they're no longer just figures to collect and go, oh, you've got the biggest box office. You think, I mean, in, in, in the years running up to COVID, we were getting told every time a film got released, it was the biggest opening weekend known since man had walked the earth. Sure. I mean, I don't imagine those days are, are going to reappear for a, for a film very soon. Well, you know, I mean, human beings are adaptable and we adapt to circumstances. And uh, when you have a year and change of a global situation that keeps you from going to a theater, um, you figure out another way to enjoy your media uh and you might you know decide to go back sure but i do think there's going to be a lagging you know kind of um uh response from audiences in terms of getting back to where we were theatrically just full stop um because naturally some people will have gotten used to you know the the current situation and have seen some comfort in there maybe they've invested into a better television you know maybe they made made purchases uh, to make their home viewing experience better. And now they have some sunk cost into not going to a movie theater. Right. Um, and that's something that, you know, you know, folks have to, to battle a little bit. Um, and, you know, and then when it comes to like new ways of thinking about bringing audiences into your content, wherever it is, the other difficult thing for traditional systems is if you do start having a more robust presence on social media, for instance, you know, you start collaborating with YouTubers hmm. and using them as advocates of your work. Well, the benefit is you're going to get to those audiences in hopefully an authentic way that will help draw attention to your work. But the danger for this system is you're also further legitimizing and mainstreaming the system of social media by being there, which is now like it's it's a it's a buoying effect on everyone who's on there. And so now these homebrew media alternatives start to feel like cultural parody with the uh, parody with a, you know, ITY 
um, with traditional corporate media. Um, and then now you're, you know, you're a World War 13 year old might be like, well, I don't really see a functional difference between this person I watch on YouTube and Matt Damon. You know, they're both telegenic. They're both charismatic. They're comfortable in front of a camera. They're both shot in 4K. It looks nice, you know. And so it's it's a tricky thing. Um, uh, but, you know, it's just kind of like where we are. But I, I think for content creators, this is a, a the best time to bet. No, I mean, you know, look, I mean, one of my favorite examples, I mean, you, you're talking to me on a podcast that, that I've created for myself. Right. You know, that, that, and I've, I've got a platform that I can put it out on. I mean, I work in unison with a couple of indie websites who put it on their site, but, but beyond that, it's, it's distributed because, and it's available for whoever wants to do it once, once it's live. Um, but I'm, but I'm, but, but thinking of stuff that I pay for outside of my own activities, I subscribe to a Liverpool podcast called Anfield Rap. Now, mm. the hosts of that show were all fans of Liverpool Football Club before they were podcast presenters. But the way that they talk about football is is unique compared to anybody at the highest level of football journalism because they've got a view of a football club that I love that journalists don't have. Mm-hmm. And so when you're getting an experience that you can't get elsewhere. So suddenly they've they've come from the bottom up, as it were, but they've just grabbed, and I'm not alone in choosing to listen to them instead of watching Murdoch's Sky Sports channel, for example. And you've lost it. You've kind of lost, you're competing for attention. And that's, and that's not something really sort of broad as football. You know, this isn't like, I'm not talking about, you know, collecting lead figures from 19th century here. I'm talking about like a global mm. football, a global sport, but yet people are sprouting up everywhere. And, and like you described, you know, the way people are consuming films. I can I can offer a little bit of hope for film. I recently interviewed a 19-year-old filmmaker who was isolating because of COVID and mm. he'd chosen a four-hour Fassbender documentary to watch. And I was thinking, well, there's hope for you, 19, in uh, choosing to watch a Fassbender. <laughs> well, for sure. I mean, you know, look, you know, rock and roll didn't kill jazz. You know, uh, uh, people still listen to classical. Here, here's what's really fascinating to me, Stuart. Go on. When I was a kid, I would go to the local library um, here, and I would check out these audio cassettes of uh, old radio broadcasts of The Shadow. You know, the one where Orson Welles was doing the voice, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, who knows what lurks in the hearts of men? The Shadow knows. Like all that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really into it. And it felt nostalgic and antiquated and your mind would kind of think about you know families gathered around these ornate beautifully carved wooden radios to get their war of the world broadcast or their shadow broadcast right um and now i look at you know 2021 and we've essentially returned back to like rko radio theater as a powerful narrative medium Mm. you know and 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 it's it's really interesting. A friend of mine, Paul Bay, he's brilliant. And he um, created a show called The Black Tapes. That was a podcast. It's really, really cool. It's like a supernatural thriller kind of uh, uh, podcast, episodic. And, you know, I'm listening to this and I'm kind of wrapped and I'm, you know, I'm on my treadmill or going for a walk or whatever I am listening to it. And I realized like, well, I'm just doing what my grandmother did with some technological differences, but essentially I'm having the same experience. I'm listening to the radio uh, and letting an, an audio-only story create pictures in my head. 
And that's why I don't have these deep concerns about mediums going away or people's relationships to the art being permanently affected in a negative way. Because I, I, I tend to think that the format always has its own purpose in our lives, right? And we're in a transitional stage right now. So when Spotify first started, no, it wasn't the home of podcasts. You know, when, when Apple first started with iTunes, it wasn't really the home of podcasts. It took time to kind of get there and, and kind of bring the format back. And so we're in a transitional period right now where we've got blockbuster films that are largely the only things you see in a the theater um, that are narratively simplified because they have to work internationally. So the, the nuanced storytelling that might be difficult in translation isn't particularly commercial. So the, the stories tend to be very broad stroke stories. Well, if the story is a very broad stroke story, then frankly, you don't really need to pay attention the entire time to know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's not the Godfather, right? Like, you know, the, the fact is that if you look down and you're scrolling through Twitter and you look up, my guess is Dominic will drive the car and save them, right? Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. So, and you know when to look up because that's when the car engine starts. And I don't in, enjoy media that way. I sit and I watch everything and, and the rest of it. But there's also a content uh, aspect to this that I don't think Damon addressed where, you know, content tends to get the attention that content deserves a lot of times, you know, like, uh, you know, he's promoting his movies. I think it's called Stillwater, right? Mm-hmm. I highly doubt that the audience is, the theatrical audience of Stillwater is full of 16 year olds. One, two, I highly doubt that the 16-year-olds that would go see Stillwater aren't paying attention because of the nature of what Stillwater is, right? Mm. It's the kind of movie where you put your phone away. But do you have to put your phone away on a roller coaster? I mean, maybe if you don't want to lose it. Actually, but- I mean, the thing, the, the, the thing that, the, the recurring thought that keeps happening as we're talking is that we there's like a yo-yo between this idea of what's popular and has cultural impact and then there's mm. art, which happens everywhere, anywhere, every day. And obviously TikTok, by extension, is happening not because of any commercial pursuit, but because the person with the TikTok account can, which in many ways is a bit like the hundreds of thousands of people who might be sat in front of an easel right now painting a picture mm. that's probably that may be available for £50 on an Etsy stall or whatever it might be. But it's not mm. Van Gogh. But it doesn't stop them doing the painting equally. Having a phone doesn't stop you producing content, and therefore, that maybe is what the shift is here. That we're that, that the 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 difficulty is how does industry compete with it? Because, like you said, you like you said, you could lose the will to live trying to find something to watch, and then end up just putting YouTube on and watching something of interest that you find that's maybe twenty minutes because you've wasted. 30 minutes searching for something you didn't find. And I've done done exactly the same myself. And that's where that's where the challenge is, isn't it? The choice we have is can almost suit every mood, but equally the people making it, there's no there's no barrier to it. Just like like I say, there's no barrier to someone doing a painting if all you're bothered about right. is doing a painting. Well, I, I think, you know, so thinking about solutions, 
And, you know, this is just my conjecture um, uh, here, but I think, I think one of the issues is we've lost the smaller budgeted film in theaters in a lot of ways, right? Like they're, they're not really being sent to theaters or sent to streaming. I understand why and all that, but we're in a world of billion dollar swings where you got to make something for $200 million and it needs to make a billion dollars or 250 needs to make a billion dollars. You know, that's going to make your thinking pretty conservative because you don't want to lose any money. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be trying to not get, you know, you don't, you want to have as many people involved in it as possible. And so I think the result of that is that the art gets diluted a little bit, you know, you'll have something that is pretty safe that is inoffensive, but it also probably won't be anyone's favorite movie. You know, it'll, it'll, you know, maybe smash and grab and make you some money and do all of that. So we have a little bit of that and, and we're not building, I don't think we're, we're really building either celebrity actors or celebrity filmmakers the way that we used to. Like when we think to Tom Cruise, it's easy to say, well, it was Top Gun, you know, and then, you know, Rain Man. And, you know, we think about the big temple, thing, hmm. Mission Impossible, you know what? But we forget about the cocktails, you know. Risky business. We forget. Yeah, the risky business. We forget about the way to build a career, right? The, the, the way that you built it with, you know, this movie you know, was able to kind of layer in, oh, there's a romantic lead quality here. And this movie was about the comic timing and the rest of it. And, and you got to the point where you build up a star. You made these, these vehicles that were able to do that. They don't really do that anymore. Now what happens is you get cast in a comic book movie, most likely, which gives you worldwide recognition as a comic book character. Then you'll often see, you know, an actor try to spend that cultural uh, um, capital in something else that might be more challenging dramatically, but then the audiences don't go with them because the audiences aren't there for the actor. They're there for the comic book character, mm. right? They're, they're there for Batman, you know? Yeah. There's not, there's not, not a lot of crossover is there between incredible Hulk and Blackwater or Darkwater, sorry. <laughs> right. Precisely. Right. So, so, you know, that is, it's a bit of a thing, you know, and, um, and with streaming, it's a little different because yeah, you can make movies and, you know, I have a movie that's, that's probably, I think going direct to streaming that's coming out um, fairly soon that I wrote, I uh, didn't direct it. Um, but, you know, there's so much of it that it gets kind of lost in the deluge. So, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, maybe spending less and taking more risks with things, um, you know, like books do this. So when you look at how like publishing works, um, it's usually a runaway book pays for all the other books that didn't work. Mm. And you don't really know what the runaway book's going to be, right? You don't know Girl on a Train is going to be Girl on a Train and then it becomes Girl on a Train, great. And it's going to pay for all the other murder mysteries that didn't really land, right? And that's kind of the, the model that they're in. Um, but I don't really see, you know, like a big movie comes out, makes a ton of money, and then some of that gets reinvested into growing this filmmaker over here or trying your little risky thing over there or seeing, you know, seeing what we can do over here, sort of build up the next thing. Instead, it just kind of gets rolled over into the next huge thing. And I think that might be a bit of a self-defeating thing because eventually you're going to, you know, have a movie that costs a bunch of money that doesn't really make any money. And then it just stops the whole machine in a little bit. Right. So there's that. The other thing is, um, and this is being again, more to what Matt's point was, if as an artist, 
you want people to pay attention to your art, it is your responsibility to make your art compelling enough that they do. Right. Mm-hmm. However you choose to do that. So uh, we don't need a cultural security guard telling people to put their phones away when they're standing in front of the Mona Lisa. Most people do because it's the Mona Lisa. You know, most people experience the Sistine Chapel and they pay attention to it because it's the Sistine Chapel. We can't complain about people not spending time on things if the things that we're making aren't necessarily compelling enough to to get us to focus on them. (laughs) Yes, yes, this is, uh, yeah, you're... uh... You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's our, it's task. a paradox in, in an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the artist's challenge is how do I get you to pay attention to this? How can I make this compelling? You know? Um, and it takes experimentation and a bit of risk to find out how to do that. And those things are, are tricky for big studios to do. But again, that's where I think the, the, the growth of independent media is great because they can take those risks. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it sounds, I mean, because what you describe with publishers is, is more or less what major labels have done for years. Though It's like going to a horse race and backing all mm-hmm. 12 horses and only one has to win. So as long mm-hmm. as one wins, if you back them all, you can't lose, can you? So with a, with a major label, there'll be, you two make loads of money for Alan Records so that money can flow back into Alan mm-hmm. Records to maybe find another U2. And there's a lot of trial and error goes on. But going down to an artist level, there's a, there's a great example I read in a book called Art and Fear where a, an art lecturer says to a bunch of students, he goes, right, you half of the room design me the perfect shoe. You design me as many shoes as you can. And inevitably, the group of people who got to, got to design as many shoes as they can came up with all the interesting ideas, whereas the people asked to design perfect, which is the equivalent of billions of dollars, was so hemmed in by conservative thought, they couldn't think outside of any box because all they were thinking about was perfect. And in a way, right. you make a $200 million movie, you're saying this is going to be the perfect audience vehicle to make a billion pound, billion dollars. Well, that's a big ask, isn't it, of any kind of art, and, and certainly in an age that we've, we've, we, you know, we've not defined it in any way, but I think we've danced around the fact that if you and I are behaving differently in how we consume film and TV, then you can bet your bottom dollar the rest of the other 7 billion people who've got access to the internet and a cinema are doing the same too. Um, but I think we could probably talk about this for a lot longer, and I'm conscious of your time. So I'm going <laughs> indeed, to, indeed. I'm going to thank you very much for lending us your thoughts on this. It's been absolutely fascinating and intriguing. And Another thought that when you were talking about, I can't remember what you were talking about, but another thought that struck me, and it was it was about the idea of the video shop and how that was more engaging. Mm. And it dawned on me that mm. my comic shop in Manchester that I used to go to as a kid was a window into a world beyond comics. So, for example, if it hadn't been for that shop, I wouldn't own a copy of Carol, Carolyn Glover's Men, Women and Chainsaws book, which is a feminist critique of horror films. Now, right, I wouldn't right. have found that just by going in a bookshop, but because it was situated mm-hmm. in a comic store and it, and the, the guy who run it must have put it in a prominent place that it caught my eye. And I remember when I got it home, I was like, oh my God, what is this? It was this dry academic text. And because I'd bought it, I carried on looking and thinking I'm going to work this out. And then I learned a whole lot more that I still use in my head to this day. Now, 
Mm-hmm. The internet cannot, at the moment, I don't think, replicate that experience of finding cultural reference points in your um, in your growth of you know consuming media or whatever it is. But yeah, I think the internet does many great things, and that's and that's the progress we're on. You know, a friend of mine had a film come out last year or year before his house, a British horror film, and it was amazing to be chatting with friends of mine on Twitter who were from all over the world about how good the film was because they could access it on Netflix like I could. Mm-hmm. There was no barrier to us having this conversation about, about, about when you're going to see the film. It was just like, it came out that Friday night and we all got to see it. Mm-hmm. And that was a little mini event. It wasn't a big event like a like a Marvel film coming out, but in my peer group, as it were, it was a nice thing to happen that we could share. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, yeah, indeed. And I, and I think that's good. That's good progress in my mind, but for sure. it's a pain in the ass for marketing people. Yeah. Well, you know, like, like it, sometimes you can put your hands up and say, we, and then sometimes you have to actually row. <laughs> and I think they have to start rowing now. Indeed. Well, look on that, on that thought, I'll just say, thank you very much for giving me your time on the British podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Stuart. Cheers. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something wrong before.